Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Vanessa Sheridan, an expert business consultant, respected author, and transgender activist. This U.S. Air Force veteran lives in Chicago after relocating from Minneapolis to join the staff of Center on Halstead. Vanessa is the organization's Director of Gender Equity and Inclusion. Vanessa graduated from Metropolitan State University in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she was subsequently named one of the 40 alumni who are making a difference. She did graduate work at the United Theological Seminary also in the Twin Cities. She was profiled as a leader in religious movements for justice for LGBTQ persons by the LGBT Religious Archives Network in 1991. Vanessa's been providing public outreach, speaking, writing, consulting, and offering transgender awareness training services nationally for major corporations, nonprofit organizations, and federal government agencies. She's the author of three published books, including The Complete Guide to Transgender in the Workplace. This is the first full-length, hard-covered book on this topic ever released by a mainstream publisher. In addition, she's twice been a National Lambda Literary Award finalist for other trans-related books she's written. Vanessa has spoken in the media and at many conferences and seminars throughout the nation. She's passionately sharing a message of inclusion and gender authenticity. She's a nationally recognized expert on the timely, relevant topic of transgender in the workplace. Vanessa was the first transgender member of the Board of Directors for the Stonewall National Museum and Archives, and she currently serves as a member of a National Transgender Advisory Committee for Out and Equal Workplace Advocates. Vanessa was a recipient of an Esteem Award for Outstanding Service in 2018. Vanessa, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm well, thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here with you, and I'm really honored to have the chance to talk with you. Well, I'm glad to talk to you, too, I'm telling you. So, I, in digging, I found out that you were from Apple Valley, Minnesota. Where is Apple Valley? It's a southern suburb of Minneapolis. It's about 10 miles south, or 10 minutes south of uh, the Mall of America, if that helps to locate where that is. It's a very nice suburb. I've, I've lived there for a long time, and I still own a house there. Mm, mm-hmm. 
So Minnesota was home growing up? Not really growing up. Uh, I was born in Asheville, North Carolina, and grew up in Orlando, Florida, actually, but moved to uh, Minneapolis uh, in my 20s and lived there for a long time before I moved to Chicago to go to work for Center on Halstead. Well, that shows you what a small world it is. My mother's family, um, well, they were from Cullowee, North Carolina, and the closest big city was Asheville. So, I mean, it's just oh, sure. how, you know, it's, it's like really a small world. Um, what took you to Minnesota? Was it education or what drew you there? It's a long, convoluted story. Um, <laughs> many, many years ago, I was traveling the country playing in a rock band and uh, met someone in Minnesota, fell in love. And got off the road, uh, settled in, in the Minneapolis area, and lived there for a long, long time. And uh, now I'm here in Chicago. Wow. So you were in a rock band. What was your band called? The band was called Easy. And um, I've, been, I've been a musician all my life. I, I play a number of instruments, and I sing and write songs. And so, you know, it's... Uh, something that I've always enjoyed, and it was uh, an interesting period in my life and something that, uh, you know, I had a great experience doing. Mm. Ah. Well, you know what, and it's funny because, like, earlier we had, you know, I had briefly mentioned the things that I knew about Minnesota, and, you know, you do think in part about music, in part because of a legacy of Prince, and, you know, which cover, and, you know, he covered all different genres, so... Yeah, oh, yeah, I could see that. You know, I I could see that. I know that um, often, though, I mean, it, it broadens your horizons about what you think about Minnesota because I know that often I think that it, earlier in life if someone had asked me, I would just said, well, it's cold. That's all I could think of. It's cold, but it's music. There's a strong arts community. And you went there, and then – which is interesting that you went from being a rock, a rock musician, but then you got into theology. Was that, like, yeah. you know, was that, well, was it something that had been in your, on the back burner or just like you just felt the calling to it? You know, it's funny. I, I, I look back in hindsight on that period in my life and I, I was uh, raised in a fundamentalist Southern Baptist home in the Deep South. Mm-hmm. And my, my spirituality has always been important to me. But um, as I got older, I began to, to think that maybe what I should do is go learn a little bit more about theology and, and try to be able to apply it uh, in some ways that could be beneficial to the world, which is why I went to seminary there for a while and did some writing uh, wrote a couple of books on transgender Christian spirituality. Since that time, and this was 20 years ago, since that time, I like to think that, you know, I've continued to evolve, and I really don't even, you know, have a whole lot to do with religion anymore. My spirituality is still very important to me, but I've kind of moved away from the whole religious piece and, and much more focused on uh, on, you know, doing work that is meaningful for me, uh, which I think has a strong spiritual component anyway. So it's really just all part of a whole, and uh, I keep moving forward. You know, it, and it's, 
It's interesting, too. I mean, like, like you did that, and I've talked to to other people, and particularly, you know, for I have friends in, who are in the trans community who have been, like, really put off by religion. But, like you said, being deeply spiritual at the same yes. time. And the fact that you went mm-hmm. and you, like, you dug deeper into it, but you found that other part. and then, But yet, you were recognized, you were profiled as a leader in religious movements for justice. You know, well, I, how does that... I still feel like that, you know, the work that I do is, has a strong spiritual component to it. It's just not officially religious in nature. That's all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, and I guess this seems like, too, it, it's especially at a time when not only the LGBT community, but especially the trans community, a lot of where the work needs to be done is in communities of faith. And, you know, and I've talked to some people, and it's like, I mean, I know that when in Charlotte, when they were having the whole bathroom bill, they had a, a, a clergy coalition. And I'm going like, okay, oh, this is really kind of cool, but that they also got around it and there was one um, Reverend Dawn who was on there who was like, you know, that she sort of like was able to pull in this, this, these allies and these coalitions to talk about the fundamental rightness. And I think that even when you start to talk about spirituality, whether or not you follow a basic religion, there's that, that the spirit of, of humanity that's there. Do you find, um, as you're going around, that often that you're more of that person that's sort of like helping people find that common thread and being in touch with their humanity? Well, I certainly would like to think so. Um, I, I do believe that we all have much, much more in common than we don't. And I think we all have a spiritual component. Now, it, it manifests itself in a lot of different ways, obviously, in people's lives. But I would like to think that, you know, um, spirituality helps us get in touch with the better angels of our nature and uh, helps us become better human beings in the process. So, yeah, I, it's still, you know, very important to me uh, to be able to access my spirituality and hopefully to help others access theirs as well. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, having been on the stage as a musician, how did, did you feel in some ways, did that help prepare you for when you de- decided to embark upon doing this public outreach and the speaking? I mean, you've been doing it since 1991. Did, did you, do you ever find yourself like getting, putting your, your rock and roll mode, like, get that spirit going so that you can get out there and speak? Or was public speaking something that you had always felt comfortable doing? Well, I would say both and. Um, <laughs> I, I do believe that, that, that being on stage is something that I learned how to do at a fairly early age. And uh, being a musician uh, on stage and, and trying to, to do a good job with that, you know, kind of lends itself to being a public speaker. So I, I, I still call upon that kind of energy. And, you know, some of the things that I learned over the years about being on stage, you know, translate quite well into the work that I do now. So uh, I think it all, you know, is, feeds on itself and it's all part of a whole. So uh, 
I just try to use what I know how to do and, and try to be effective with it. And I think being a performer, you know, has helped me uh, move forward with the work that I do now in so many different ways. It's, it's all been quite useful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why did they, what was it about you that made, you know, your alum, your, your university say that you were one of 40 alumni who are making a difference? Was it any, had you already started on this pathway of, of doing public speaking, of being a change agent? Yes. Um, my school uh, had a program a few years back uh, where they were looking for, you know, um, graduates of the school who had gone on to, to make a difference in the world. And uh, someone nominated me, you know, uh, as part of that program, and they decided to include me as one of 40 alumni who were making a difference. And I was very grateful for that. Um, you know, it, it's kind of nice when your alma mater recognizes you for something that you care so passionately about. Mm-hmm. So that's that's sort of how that happened, and uh, it, it's just a, a nice thing to to know and to, and to be part of. You know, a lot has changed since 1991. And, you know, in fact, um, just recently I was talking to um, Willie Wilkinson, and he was telling me, you know, how he talks to young trans, trans masculine people now, and they're like, you know, and he wishes like at a moment like, gee, you know, I wish I had been born now. And even as you go through the whole gay experience, I know that there are some parts that I go like, wow, you know. To be today, you know, to be a young person coming out today would be so much easier. But what have you seen change? But what do you worry? Are you concerned about that as we think like, hey, you know, hey, it's a new day. Everything's great that we might be forgetting. Well, I think the main thing that I'm worried about and most concerned about right now is the alarming political trend that we see in the country uh, that, that shift toward the far right. Uh, mm-hmm. Because as we move toward the far right as a nation, I think our civil rights become endangered. I'm very concerned about uh, protections and civil rights for, particularly for the transgender community. I mean, we see evidence that the, the government is taking steps to uh, attack the trans community. Uh, we're look, you know, look at the transgender military ban that, that Donald mm-hmm. Trump is trying to impose. That kind of thing. Uh, and, and we see again the civil rights of, of LGBT folks in general, you know, being attacked by by the federal government and and by certain state governments as well. That concerns me greatly. And uh, we don't know what's going to happen with the Supreme Court. Uh, that's kind of up in the air right now. I, I worry very much about uh, yeah, marriage equality being overturned, uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned, things like that. So that has me that has me concerned. On the other hand, the flip side of the story is that I have seen so much progress, particularly for the transgender community uh, in my lifetime, and particularly over the last 25 years or so. I can remember when it was illegal to be cross-dressed out in public for, you know, for crying out loud. Um, but today we're seeing, you know, a tremendous outpouring of support for the civil and human rights of transgender people by the general public, you know, which is incredibly encouraging and affirming to me. Uh, you know, the bathroom bill thing that was down in North Carolina that you were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. what we saw was a pretty significant backlash 
you know, to that kind of bigotry uh, on the part of the general public, which I thought was great. And uh, I, I think people, people may not know everything about the transgender phenomenon, but they do recognize injustice and inequality when they see it. And I think that's what people respond to. So I, I'm encouraged by that. So it's kind of a, the glass is half empty and half full kind of situation these days. You know, especially when with the the ban on the military, because there are reasons that people go into the military, and and you know there is this whole interconnectivity where many people are still going into the military to for employment opportunities that aren't out here for you know for future of education that they can get afterwards. But like you're saying, you know. I mean, you're a veteran. I have other friends who have yes, been yes. veterans. And, you know, you served your country. And, you know, and even, and then I talked to one person who said, you know, basically that's why they went where they were living. They were in a rust belt city. There weren't jobs. And they joined. But she also said that she went in in a way to try to, to see if she could, like, throw off this feeling that she was a woman and that maybe if mm-hmm. she and, and, and her family encouraged her, like you go in there and you're going to man up. And if for anything, what it did was really affirm to her who she was. But she was saying like, as a veteran, there's veterans benefits and, and veterans that you try to go to for as far. And now there's this hostile, you know, attitude and you still have young people who are, going into the military for the same thing, but now they're going, you know, this ban. I mean, that is just like, just horrendous. And like you said, how do we recognize the people who have gone in and served and made it to where now we have a volunteer? There is no draft, you know. Well, I think... Yeah, it's, it's an unfortunate situation that exists currently. Uh, the, the, the proposed transgender military ban is simply ridiculous. All of the reasons that were given for its implementation are bogus and don't hold water at all. Uh, they've been proven to be, you know, ineffective and, and untrue. So there's no reason to do this other than sheer bigotry, and that's mm-hmm. the problem. Um, I, I personally have benefited greatly from uh, my own time in the military. I went to college on the GI Bill. You know, I bought a house with a VA loan. Uh, I go to the VA, you know, for some of my medical mm-hmm. treatments. So I'm, I'm very grateful, you know, for the opportunity I had to serve in the military. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but, you know, for some people it's a lifeline. You know, it's a way out of mm-hmm. poverty. It's a way out of joblessness, homelessness, whatever. Um, and no one who wants to serve and who meets the qualifications should be denied that opportunity, regardless of their gender identity. Transgender people have always served in the military and have done so honorably. I received an honorable discharge. I had a top secret security clearance while I was in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no question that trans people can serve with honor and distinction and have been doing that and continue to do that. Uh, to deny them the opportunity to serve is simply ridiculous and counterproductive to, uh, you know, military effectiveness and readiness. Yeah, and how do you make the country and your military the best that it can be when you deny the best from serving? 
from people to bring what they have to it to serve and to do it. It's just like, it is so ridiculous. But then, you know, and I wonder too, because there's so much drama going on, are people really recognizing, you know, does it get like pushed to the back burner or one minute it's a hot discussion and then it's gone under? And like you said, the other part is like with young people, because um, I love, particularly as you saw, like after um, the shooting and you saw these young people come out and march and they talked about making sure that everybody was part of the state. And the same thing that you feel so proud about young people being bold and saying it and believing that that is our hope because young people, if this is my friend, they can be black, white, green, gay, straight, trans. This is my friend and we're standing in solidarity. But we know, you know, it wasn't that long ago. You know, um, there's one of the historians who I've talked to has said that part of how he was able to identify LGBT people was from police records. And there were records of people who were sitting on their front stoop who were arrested for gross indecency because they were identified as men wearing dresses. So, and that wasn't that long ago. So what a slippery slope it is that we can go back. So as, as much as we are happy and encourage them, you know, and I know when people say, oh, stop being fearful, just encourage them. We have to, we can't forget our history. They are at the center Absolutely. for Halstead. You know, they're at the center for Halstead. Um, how do you encourage youth and encourage trans inclusivity but also have that cautionary tale? Yeah, well, I think you have to look at both sides of the equation. Number one, we have worked really hard to get where we are right now, but we can lose it all very quickly, mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. And we need to be aware of that. On the other hand, we always need to keep moving forward. You know, and we certainly work very hard to do that at Center on Halstead where I work. By the way, I should tell you, um, I just got a new job title like about a week ago at Center okay. on Halstead. I am now the Director of Gender Equity and Inclusion which is mm -hmm. a, a nice title, and my responsibilities mm -hmm. have expanded. So uh, I'm excited about that. And what that does is it gives us more opportunities, really, to provide programming and events and opportunities to uh, reach out to the trans community and provide resources and support and affirmation. And it's especially important to do that for the young trans people. Uh, mm -hmm. I am so encouraged by those young folks. They are, are so smart, so courageous, uh, so remarkable and so self-aware, much more so than I was when I was young. Mm -hmm. And uh, I simply want to continue to try to, you know, encourage them and support them in any way that I can. Well, Vanessa, let's take our first break here. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about your new job and what you do. So in that okay. capacity. Okay, so we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. 
For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. Back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm speaking with Vanessa Sheridan, who works with the Center on Halstead in Chicago. You know, Vanessa, I love your new job, and I also know that, you know, how we talk about, like, not only the bathroom bills, but you go out, and I know that you've done a lot talking with organizations, with government stuff, things that about being inclusive and equity and being inclusive to not have bathrooms that are where anyone can use. And I personally, you know, the most important sign to me to have on the door is please wash your hands when you leave. I mean, you know, because mm-hmm. I mean, when you hear stories, I mean, past stories and, and I, I have a friend here who talks about how, she went in the bathroom at a sports arena and, you know, she came out and there was a security person there because someone had said, oh, they shouldn't be there. And, you know, that is just, like you said, some places it's fine. And if you can say you have a workplace, it's inclusive and welcoming, but you still have, you don't do that training. You don't really talk about being inclusive you can still have those kinds and still make it where someone doesn't feel comfortable in that workplace. What is the message that you're taking to, um, to workplaces, to governments, to other organizations about really being inclusive beyond saying, you know, anybody can go in the bathroom and we'll talk about it if, if we hit it. Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, I spent a great deal of my time out talking with uh, organizations and trying to help them uh, understand the necessity and the, the advantages and benefits of being gender inclusive. Uh, and that's really the focus. Is uh, One of the things I, try, I really tried to do is make the business case as to why you know, this is advantageous for an organization to be gender inclusive. First of all, um, if the war for talent in the business community is, is very real, and talent is basically the currency of, of the business community these days. So if you want to get top talent, you have to be as inclusive as possible in your workforce. If you want to recruit and retain the best talent, you, know, you have to provide places where LGBTQ folks can work. You know, um, the uh, millennials in particular are much less bigoted towards sexual and gender diversity than previous generations. And those young people who are coming out of college and moving into the workforce, they want to work in an organization where their LGBTQ friends can work. And so inclusivity is really important for organizations if they want to maintain a a competitive advantage in the workplace. So that's one of the messages I take right away. Um, In the new book that I'm working on, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but, you know, I offer uh, several what I call the five fundamentals for a uh, gender-authentic workplace. 
you were talking about restrooms a moment ago. Um, one of the things I always like to share when we get into this discussion about restroom usage for trans people is this fact, and this is the absolute truth, more U.S. congressmen have been arrested for sexual misconduct Thank in you. restrooms than, trans, than transgender people have. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, if we're going to pass any bathroom bills, they should probably be laws to keep U.S. congressmen out of the restrooms. That might help us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, law enforcement officials across the country report that there has not been one single incident of a transgender person attacking anybody in a restroom. It just does not happen. So mm-hmm. what we're dealing with here is a lot of fear-based, you know, myths and uh, stuff that people have made up to try to scare folks into passing bigoted laws. And I just I like to make people aware of the truth of the matter so that they can make some, you know, intelligent decisions based on the facts rather than on fear and hearsay. So, again, the message of inclusion that I like to take out to organizations is that, you know, you need to be open to all different kinds of people because that's that's your, the real strength of an organization is when you can get diverse opinions and life experiences and perspectives, you know, that people can bring to the table because that's, that, you know, strengthens the pool of creativity that you have to develop breakthrough ideas. You know, there's all kinds of reasons to be as inclusive as possible in your workforce. And, you know, when, when you can share that message and do it in a way that makes business sense for, you know, uh, an organization, it really helps people to understand why this is important. Now, you know, I spoke with someone from Pride at Work, and one of the things that they were saying is, like, a lot of this training and stuff happens at a higher level, but when you get to the workplace floor, you know, that often it's not being enforced and that uh, she was saying that they had someone who basically was having being harassed on, on the workplace floor, even though their company had policies and things, but it was sort of like, well, it's not going to be enforced. How do we, right. we shift that to where, you know, and I, but on the flip side, I have had friends who have gone through their whole transition with a very supportive workplace. And like you said, they recognized they had a great employee. They supported them. And as they transitioned, not only did, the, did they change personally, but their coworkers changed to begin to understand mm-hmm. and be more inclusive. How do we make this happen, make this change happen to where – of course, you know, it, it's not just coming from the boardroom. It's not somewhere hidden in the handbook. It's what's lived and, and believed wholeheartedly at an organization. Well, I think the way we do it is you change the world one person, one heart, one mind at a time. And, you know, if you want to, to create change in a workplace and change people's attitudes, you know, uh, and their perspectives about who transgender people are, for example, the best way that I have found to do that is to provide real, you know, quality, in-depth training to people. Once you can get out and put a human face on this issue, you know, people are afraid of what they don't understand, right? But once Mm -hmm. you provide the facts and give them the information, you know, the fear tends to dissipate. And then we can just treat each other like human beings. 
and we can have you know working relationships and, and build teamwork and camaraderie. So I think that's the way to do it. Is you go out and and you you know personalize it and and let people understand that we're all just human beings here, and we need to treat each other with respect because that's the key for me. It's always about respect. As long as we're being respectful to each other, you know. That's when progress. Here's the thing. You educate people first. You give them the information. That raises the awareness level. Once you raise the awareness level, that's when progress can actually begin to happen and to occur. So I just like to go out and do the education piece. And I find that that does raise awareness levels. And as awareness gets raised, progress occurs. It almost happens naturally, and you know, by osmosis. So it's, it's uh, all about putting this human face on the issue, and that's really what makes the difference, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I totally agree. I mean, when you, when, you, when you develop relationships with people, you know, and you develop, like I develop a relationship with Vanessa, okay, and so I know you, and I know how I feel about you, and that helps me when someone, I hear someone saying hate speech where I can go like, whoa, wait a minute, you don't know what you're talking about. And I agree with you. It has right. to be like that one-on-one, um, developing allies and helping people recognize that sometimes to be an ally means that you can't be silent. Uh, you have to oh, speak no. up and say things. Mm-hmm. So. You have to speak up. You know, I, I talk about that a lot in the trainings I do. I talk about how to be an ally. And one of the things I tell people is that being silent in the face of transphobic remarks and things like that is to give implied consent to what's being said. Mm-hmm. So you can't just sit back and let people say whatever they want and not call them out on it because that's implying that it's okay to do that. And it's not okay. So we need to stop it in its tracks. Uh, and now that takes some courage, I'll admit. It's not easy to do. You've got to be kind of brave to speak up when somebody's bad-mouthing somebody else. But if you don't do it, you're essentially going along with what they're saying, and that's not okay. So, now, I like the fact, I mean, you have three published books, but one was the first full-length hardcover book on, on the topic of transgender in the workplace ever released by a mainstream publisher. You know, as, mm-hmm. a, as a sister queer person, we know that often when we take our, our books and our manuscripts to mainstream publishers, they aren't always like, unless you know you're famous or something, you know, often there's like a sort of like step back, you know, like, eh. Did, That's true. You took that, and when you took that book and you found that they were going to accept it and they were going to do it, how did that make you feel? Did you like, you know, at last? Yeah, it was kind of a, a validation of the hard work that I had put into in terms of writing it. And it was also a validation of the fact that the message was important, you know, important enough to publish. And I was really gratified by that. Um, now I've got kind of a track record, so it's, a, it's easier for me to get my stuff published. Uh, in fact, I have a new book coming out uh, in December of this year. Um, would this be a good time to talk about that, or do you want to do that later? Well, 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 we're going to give, I'm, I'm working my way up there. But I, my question is, when you first did this book, okay, and I've talked about, uh-huh. did you, did, were there, was there a pressure for you to do Trans 101? I mean, because often it's the like, you know, 
I have friends that are like, you know, I get tired of having to always go in there and do trans 101. You know, I want to go beyond that. I want to talk about trans in the workplace and, and the bigger issues. But was there a pressure from a mainstream publisher to sort of like box you into what development that you, what way you went with your, with your manuscript? <laughs> No, I was pretty fortunate in that they bought the premise that I was trying to present to them, you know, which was the significance of being open to uh, bringing transgender people into an organizational culture and then working with them. And so the book was sort of a how to make that happen. And uh, uh-huh. so, you know, the publisher bought that, that premise and said, okay, you know, we think this is worth doing and uh, we'll go along with that. And they did. Uh-huh. And, uh, I, let me tell you one quick story, if I may. Um, you never know. When you put a book out, you, you, you never really know how people are going to respond to it. You just hope for the best, right? You do the best work you can, and then you put it out there and let the universe take it and do what it will, you know. Well, one day after the book came out, shortly after it came out, uh, I, I got an email from somebody in Madrid, Spain, who had emailed me and said, I wanted to write and say thank you for your book. Uh, I work for the telephone company in here in Madrid, and I recently transitioned in the workplace. I realigned my gender, and it's all been very successful, and I used your book as my primary resource in doing that. So I just wanted to write and say thank you for writing this book. It's made a, a real difference in my life. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody mm-hmm. writes to me and says something like that, I mean, that's pretty profound. You know, I, mm-hmm. I got to play a small part, you know, in something really significant, you know, in this person's life. And that is so gratifying. So you just mm-hmm. never know how people are going to respond or, or what the feedback is going to be. But in this case, it's been very positive, and I've been very fortunate in that people have really responded well to the message of inclusion that I tried to, you know, put out there. And, you know, and isn't it in some ways, and, you know, and, not lacking, you know, Lambda Literary or all the awards and, and those things, but that, that, you know, here was someone and you, you, you touched their life, you helped them live authentically and, and oh, yes. made it all right. That is like, you know, I mean, that's like the Nobel Prize <laughs> to me. Well, yeah. it, to, well, to me, it just doesn't get any better than that. You know, uh, mm-hmm. that's why we're that's why we're here. We're here to make a difference mm-hmm. in people's lives, and I think we were able to do that with that book. And so, I'm just incredibly humbled and grateful, you know, to have been part of that process. Wow. Now you've got okay. I'm working my way to the new book, but what were the other two books? Because I know it's I read that you had done three. Yeah, well, the other two books were on the, were uh, basically on the topic of transgender Christian spirituality, and that's why you know I got that designation as a, a religious leader, et cetera, et cetera, was for those books. Um, mm-hmm. I wrote the first book on transgender Christian spirituality that was ever released by a mainstream publisher. Uh, so again. And both of those books were Lambda Literary Award finalists. Mm -hmm. So that's what that was about. And then my emphasis shifted from the religious sphere over toward the workplace. And the reason I made that shift was because I was trying to broaden, you know, and expand the message 
and get it to more people. And so I'm, I ask myself the question, where are all the adults during the day? Well, they're all in the workplace. They all go to jobs mm-hmm. every day. So that's why I shifted my uh, message over to uh, focus on the workplace, and it seems to have been successful in that regard. Uh, uh-huh. So, all right. So we're going to move we switch things up a little bit. Tell me about your new book. Um, it's going to be out in December. What is it on? Well, I want to share the title with you first. And the publisher okay. came up with this title. It's very long, but I think once I, I tell it to you, you'll begin to see what the book is about because I think it kind of encapsulates the, the premise pretty well. The book is called Transgender in the Workplace, The Complete Guide to the New Authenticity for Employers and Gender Diverse Professionals. So really the book is about how to be gender authentic in the workplace, why that matters, how it can benefit people and organizations, and then it, it, it becomes kind of a how-to book. I provide what I call the five fundamentals for a gender authentic workplace, which are basically best practices to help an organization move in that direction. And so I'm really excited about the book. I think it's going to be a strong resource and a, and a good asset to uh, organizations and individuals, particularly, you know, as the business community is becoming more trans-inclusive, they just need some help, you know, to uh, assist them in moving to become more trans-inclusive, and I believe this book is going to be a, a real uh, tool to help them do that. You know, and, and that makes sense because you can have the best intention, okay, but if you don't, you know, sometimes you need a handbook. It's sort of like, you know, how we say how parenting doesn't come with a handbook. Sometimes you need someone to sort of give you some steps and guidelines. And if you have a book, if you have something, and, you know, and because sometimes, you know, best intentions can sometimes go horribly, horribly wrong, you know. But if you have, like, oh, yeah. you have some here are some steps, here are some things to look at, or even to look at, even if you think you have a policy that's good, you can use it as a guide. Well, let me look. Is this really helping people be authentic, and and how does it benefit it? So that makes so much sense to me that you have have that. You're showing, you know, it's sort of like, not just like, well, you ought to do it, you ought to do it, but here's some steps, here's some guidelines that you can look at and do. But well, that's exactly right. <laughs> it is. It is. But hopefully it encapsulates, again, where we're, we're trying to go with this. By the way, I should also share this with you. I was, I was able to get uh, Congressman Mike Quigley to write the foreword for the book. So I'm pretty excited mm-hmm. about that. Not mm-hmm. everybody gets a U.S. congressman to write their books foreword, so I was mm-hmm. very fortunate mm-hmm. in that regard. And, uh, and I'm excited about that. But I just believe that the book is, is going to be, as I said, a, a really strong asset and a good resource for organizations that are struggling with some of these issues. Uh, and I love the, the concept of gender authenticity because I think it's a real key to helping people move beyond a lot of the restrictions and the barriers that our culture tends to throw up uh, you know, in front of them. And let me, if I may, just quickly share the definition of gender authenticity that I, that I use okay. in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, gender authenticity is the right to express our orientation and identity without fear of coercion to conform to social stereotypes. So if we can get out from under the burden of having to conform to social stereotypes, what that does is it liberates us to be our authentic selves. Uh, 
And the benefits of living authentically are significant. It uh, frees up all kinds of psychological and emotional energy that we can then channel into the work that we're doing. You know, I like to use the analogy when I do trainings. I like to say that a lot of times people will drive their cars to work in the morning and they'll pull into the parking lot and they'll get out of the car, but they can't be authentic when they come inside. So they end up leaving about 50% of themselves out in the parking lot all day. Wouldn't it be great if we could bring 100% of ourselves inside and be authentic? Think of how much more we could contribute, how much more productive we could be. That's why it's such a, an important you know, uh, concept to be able to share with organizations and with their people and to encourage this concept of gender authenticity. Uh, and another you know, thing that I, I like to think about, too, is that if we can focus on being gender authentic, it allows us to get out from under the alphabet soup of LGBTQ, AI, XYZ, question mark, exclamation point. Mm-hmm. And instead of all of that, we can just focus on being authentic human beings. What a concept, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, just imagine. I mean, even if you take it back to like from, because from, I tell that, I mean, it's, it's almost like crazy now that if when you found, someone found out they were pregnant, that their concern was about having a healthy child, not about uh-huh. doing a cake reveal, you know. I mean, so, so that yeah. the moment that the child is born, they're burdened with this, you know. Yes. Instead of just being loved and encouraged and allowed to go out and try and do any and everything. And then as you go through that experience of growing up and being an adult, like you said, you walk into that workplace, and when you look at a problem, you're not looking at it through one narrow little lens. You're looking at mm-hmm. it, and, you know, think of, I mean, when you stop and you think about the, the solutions we could find, the, the way that you could do it. I mean, I, every time that I see that, you know, that when, I, when I think about it, I think, you know, well, gee, how nice it would be if we just, like, let go of all of this and just sort of do it. I know that um, I was in Washington once, and there was this woman, she wrote this book, what was it? The Princess Boy? I can't think of it. I think it was. Anyhow, she she and her husband had decided to let their child, who liked to dress up as a princess, go to school. And at a certain point, you know, people were going like that, and at a certain point, uh, someone looked up and they said, where's the father? And it's like, what are you doing to your son letting this happen? And he said, you know, he said, I prayed for a healthy child. And when I realized I had a healthy child, but I was making him unhealthy by wanting him to conform to this, he said, I had to let that go. And Well, that's a wise parent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but like you're saying, like, and if you think about that, too, if you want a great employee... Let them bring all of it. Yes. Absolutely. I always like the story about the parents who had a child and uh, their friends said, well, is your kid a boy or a girl? And they said, well, we don't really know. The kid hasn't told us yet. (laughs) And I Mm -hmm. I think that's a a pretty healthy way to raise a child. Let the the Mm -hmm. child grow up and make their own decisions and don't burden them with the expectations that society has created around the gender binary. So, are you finding more audiences now 
who want to hear what you're talking about, you know, because I'm sure like when you start out in 1991, you know, it, it's grown. But is it is it still growing? And even with this political climate, you know, because I and this is a question that I had asked Willie Wilkinson, because in fact, he said that he wrote his book. He says now his book came out, I want to say, in 15. And he said he almost feels like, you know, it was light years ago. But he, and now that you've written and you've got a new one coming, is your audience, do you feel that there, there's more receptivity to it, to your message, that more people want to know, even with this political climate? Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, well, it's, it's hard to explain exactly why that is because it's a number of different factors that contribute to that. I think there's a general curiosity in society about what this whole transgender thing is about because it's a mystery to a lot of people and they would like to know more about it. That's, that's one thing. Another thing is that there is so much more information available today than there's ever been. You know, we've got the internet now and, uh, you know, there's, there's tons of information out there about it. But still, it's, you know, the, the, the transgender phenomenon is very much a mystery to a lot of folks and they appreciate it when somebody can come out and explain, you know, what it's all about and do it in, a, in an accessible way. And I try very hard to, to make that happen uh, in a way that's non-threatening, that's understandable, and that's easily accessible. And I, I think I've gotten pretty good at it over the years just because I've done it so much. And, and people seem to appreciate that. And, and there's kind of a hunger for that knowledge. When Caitlyn Jenner came out, you know, a few years ago, it, it really up to the ante, you know, in terms of curiosity about what transgender was all about. And there's still a lot of that going around. You know, we see more and more transgender representation in the media, you know, in movies and uh, mm -hmm. in magazines and, and, you know, on TV and in, in the newspapers and all that. So um, I think it's just a... It's always, we've always been here. Transgender people have always been around. It's just that we flew under the radar for such a long, long time. And now, finally, I think, you know, we've come out from under that. Uh, but still, people don't totally understand what it's all about. And, and they want to know. They're genuinely curious. And so I feel like I'm sort of uniquely positioned and equipped to be able to go out and provide some explanations. And that seems to, to be, you know, what's happening these days. Now, you know, as you opened the door, you mentioned about Caitlyn Jenner. But, you know, like you said, but there's also all of these other images of people who are out there who are doing things. I mean, even as most recently, how they showed that Pose just got renewed for a second season. And you have you have your Laverne Coxes, Laverne Coxes. Oh, yeah. Um, you have uh, the recent, was it Scarlett Johansson? Was the, I wanted her to play a, a trans yep. character, and she backed away from that role to where right. now you're having trans people play trans roles and there's more visibility. You know, with visibility, there's that yin-yang. And, um, and I also know that, you know, where there are many people in the trans community who don't, well, I won't, don't want to say don't claim, they claim, they recognize Caitlin as a, a trans woman. But, disagree of her politics and often there are those who who have criticized saying like you know well she was a republican how come she hasn't gone there and there and changed do you feel that as those are people who are more visible 
is there that responsibility to be in a political forum to move that conversation? I do. Uh, I think people who are in a position of visibility definitely have a responsibility to tell the truth and to help move the needle in whatever way they can. And the reason I feel that way is that with um, with great advantage, which visibility gives you, comes a sense you know uh, comes a sense of great responsibility too. So I think that those of us who are fortunate enough to have a platform, you know, however big or small it may be, um, need to take advantage of that platform, share the truth, the authenticity of who we are, you know, with the rest of the world in whatever ways that we can, and. And here's why. Because if you do it with authenticity, it resonates with people. People are not stupid. People can tell if you're lying. People can tell if you're trying to put one over on them. You know, people will pick on, up on that very quickly. And so whenever I go out and I do speeches or trainings or whatever, you know, I try very hard to come from a place of absolute 100% authenticity as I share my story or as I tell them, you know, the information that I, I want to share with them. Because... To do otherwise is to shortchange them and to shortchange myself and to shortchange the trans community. You've got to tell the truth and you've got to be authentic. And if you're in a position of visibility, you have an opportunity to help change people's minds and attitudes and hearts. And if you don't take advantage of that, then I think you're letting everybody down. So I try to do the best I can with that, you know, given what I have. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we're going to take our, our next break, and uh, we'll be right back because I want to talk a little bit more about the trans community with you and, and that level of responsibility. So we will be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. are back talking with Vanessa Sheridan, who is a recognized, a nationally recognized expert on trans and trans in the workplace. Uh, she works with the Center on Halstead. You know, Vanessa, um, I do some work here with the Ruth Ellis Center in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And at the Ruth Ellis Center, we have a lot of trans youth. And there's two ends of the spectrum. Because I, I, you know, I, I see, I have friends who are doing amazing things, who are doing, you know, I mean, who are with organizations, who are out speaking, who are moving the bar. Um, I have, you know, I have friends who have spoken before Congress on, on trans issues, both trans men, trans women. But last year I was there and I was talking to 
a young trans woman who was like in her 20s and she talked about the concerns how that they're yeah sure some trans people are doing it but she still had issues about finding a job about being homeless and she said she wanted to you know she was trying to get back in school and try to do things because she was concerned about those who she was seeing who were younger than her who were still sometimes sleeping in doorways still being bullied and harassed um still having such a hard way to go so i mean it's like we've come a long way but when you hear that from someone in their 20s you go like what do we need to do about our young trans kids and let's face it just like every second that a child is born one of those kids is going to be lesbian gay bisexual transgender and all of the rest of the alphabet we haven't gotten to that point where we're just talking about healthy babies we still recognize that they're still being bullied second-class citizens mistreated and have a hard way ahead of them what do we do for what what do you see you know you're working at this level, what do you see as a role that trans activists need to be doing to to build that beloved community around our kids? Wow, that's a big, big question. Um, let, me, let me just kind of frame it in terms of sharing some philosophy with you before we get into some specifics. Well, part of my philosophy is this. I don't believe you can have full social equality until you first have economic equality. And I don't believe you can have full economic equality until you provide employment opportunities for people. So I think that's a really significant key to moving forward here and, and to making progress as a society. Um, you're probably aware that the unemployment rate overall for the transgender community is twice the national unemployment mm -hmm. rate. And mm -hmm. for trans people of color, it's four times the national unemployment mm -hmm. rate. That tells me we have a significant problem in the transgender community, and, and this is why. When people are unable to gain meaningful employment and to make a living, they tend to spiral downward into this, uh, these aspects of intersectionality. Um, unemployment leads to homelessness often. It, it, you know, it leads to hunger. Um, you know, increased you know, exponentially um, opportunities to be homeless or to be hungry or to be incarcerated. You know, a lot of times people, you know, desperate people do desperate things. And so a lot of times people end up turning to sex work because they have no other alternative, which in turn increases their opportunities for arrest and incarceration. So again, it's this downward spiral. And to me, it all starts with employment opportunities. Until we're able to give people the opportunity to earn a living, we're going to continue to see the transgender community plagued by all these different you know, difficulties and obstacles to success in life. So I think that's the first thing we have to do as a society is to take a look at the inequities and the unfairness that exists in terms of employment opportunities so that people can make a decent living. In terms of young people, my goodness, uh, there's so much that's needed. Uh, I will say this. I am totally inspired by the young people of today. Uh, there was a time when I thought the next generation was not going to be able to to take us forward. 
But that all that's all changed for me in the last few months. I'm seeing, you know, for instance, those young people down at, at Park in Parkland, you know, in Florida, and standing mm-hmm. up against the NRA and, and things like that. You know, that inspires me. It encourages me, and it tells me that there is hope for the future. And that's certainly true for transgender young people today. I see so many examples of courage. You know, despite the obstacles that they're confronted with, um, they are determined to be who they are, and I totally respect that. I think that's a wonderful thing, and I think we as a society need to provide avenues so that these young people can accept themselves, to be comfortable in their own skin, to uh, have support mechanisms in place. We need mentoring programs. We need, uh, you know, job programs. We need educational programs so that they have the tools and they're equipped with the things that they need to be successful in life. At Center on Halstead, we we try to provide as much programming, as many events, and as many community opportunities as possible, you know, so that uh, the young people and the older folks, too, of the trans community can can find a home here, you know, mm-hmm. and, and find community and find support because that's so important. If you think, you know, I don't know about you, but I grew up, you know, feeling like many times I was the only person in the world who was crazy enough to feel like this. Mm-hmm. Um, now I know, I'm now I know that's not true, but, you know, when you're young and you don't know any better, you, you kind of tend to think that uh, you're an alien or something. And, uh, you know, we want to make sure that we can tell our young people that and show them, you know, that they're not alone and that it's okay to be who you are and that being trans is, is a gift, you know. Um, there was a time in my life when if there was a pill you could take to get rid of being trans, I would have swallowed the whole bottle. But today, you know, I'm proud of who I am. I like who I am. I've, I've come by that honestly, and I've worked really hard to accept who I am. And, you know, I've worked and I continue to work on myself and to try to be the best human being I possibly can be. And the fact that I'm trans on top of that is like icing on the cake as far as I'm concerned. So we need to help the community develop a sense of, you know, pride, of self-assurance, self-acceptance, and and be able to move forward in life and to make contributions because our community is full of smart, talented, capable human Mm -hmm. beings. All they need is an opportunity to, to express that and to show the world what we can bring to the table. Now, you know, I often wonder, you know, because I think that, you know, you see every municipality, every state, every county is always, you know, fighting to get companies to come in and they're doing it. And I often wonder if as more companies, and we see that, you know, become inclusive, they, they embrace diversity and change it, that then that they could sometimes perhaps by saying, you know, this is a workforce, we want them to stop doing it. Because I also had a young woman who was talking about how she lost her driver's license. And when she went in, even though she had her passport and the gender had been changed on it, the people at the Secretary of State office gave her a hard time. And she was saying, like, you know, there was one part of her that wanted to just turn around and walk out. But she knew she needed a driver's license to get a job. And do you believe that as the message gets to employers, to business, and where they really embrace inclusivity and letting people live their authentic life, that that can sort of like put that pressure on on municipalities and other government entities to sort of say, hey, 
you know, these people are our employees. We want them. And if you're doing something, if you're going to have a city or a municipality, county, township, state that isn't inclusive and welcoming, that maybe will take our business. And do you think that, that by doing that way, that businesses can be an agent for change? You are exactly right. Uh, history teaches us that social change often happens first in the workplace. And as it does, you know, people bring that, the, those changes home with them into their families and into their relationships, and it permeates out into the larger society. And I strongly believe that businesses have a significant opportunity to put pressure on government agencies and cities, municipalities, regions, that sort of thing, uh, and say, listen, you know, we want to be a place where people of every kind can work and be accepted and respected for who they are. And we want this area where we, where we operate, you know, to be a place like that. And, you know, if you don't agree that uh, diversity is a good thing, then maybe we should move our business elsewhere. You know, businesses have that capability and that opportunity. And my hope is that, you, you know, you'll see them putting that kind of pressure and using that kind of leverage to create a more just and inclusive and diverse world. Um, I certainly would like to see that, and my hope is that it will continue to, to grow, you know, in terms of its impact on the larger society. Sure. Uh, you know, there's a couple of things that we haven't touched on about you. I know that you were the first transgender member of the Board of Directors for the Stonewall National Museum and Archives. I mean, you know, which That's is right. like, I mean, it's just like, wait a minute, Stonewall, who was there? And you're the first. I mean, so congratulations on having done that. But what do you do without an equal? Well, for several years, uh, I, I actually was on the um, National Transgender Advisory Committee about an equal. I am no longer actually affiliated with that organization. Uh, mm -hmm. I chose to leave there a little while back, um, basically because I just felt like I'd put in quite a bit of time and uh, I needed to step aside and let someone else come on in. Um, mm -hmm. No animosity involved there. It's just, you know, I, th I think it was just mm -hmm. a logical decision. But, uh, you know, I was part of, uh, again, the National Trans Advisory Committee, and we worked with the organization to try to, you know, promote the idea of inclusive, inclusivity in the business community and to create some resources for organizations to use in that regard. So, you know, it was a, a worthwhile endeavor and something that I, I feel good about. So you, you speak. You do training. You found time to write a new, another book. Do you ever get back to music? Actually, I do. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I'm not playing in a band right now, and I kind of miss that because <laughs> I've played in bands pretty much all my life. But, I, you know, I play a number of different instruments. I've actually scored two documentary films and, and you know, wrote the music and played all the instruments, and that was a lot of fun. But um, I... Um, I still continue to do some songwriting and, and occasional performing. Right after the election in 2016, I wrote, you know, for lack of a better term, a protest song that I've been able to perform uh, on the radio a couple of times and uh, here in Chicago. Uh, so, you know, I still keep my hand in music and I still sing and I still play and I enjoy it. And uh, it's something that I've always done and probably always will do. It's just, you know, another outlet for creativity. And I feel like I'm very fortunate to be able to be creative on a number of different fronts. Music is just one of them. Mm -hmm. 
when you're at the center on Halstead, have have any of them, particularly the young people, heard your the your, the musical side of you? Some of them have, yeah, and they've been very complimentary, and I and I appreciate that. You know, I'm not much of a rapper, but uh, you know, I I do try to. Uh, mm-hmm. Here's the thing, you know, I think if if music comes from an authentic place, you know, if it comes from your heart, mm-hmm. I think that can touch people no matter how old they are, you know, or who they are, and and uh, you know that's that's that, that that human you know element that resonates for people. And I think if you can do that, uh, you know, you, you, you strum a common chord, you know, that touches people's lives. And, and, you know, that's what the goal of communication is about, whether it's music or speaking or writing or whatever it is. Um, it, it's to touch people's hearts and minds and emotions in ways that are meaningful for them. And, you know, the goal of art is to show us to ourselves. And I, I've tried to do that and will continue to try to do that. Yeah, I know, I know, I know exactly what you mean because I mean, often like I'll do, I'll do one thing, and then someone will see me and they'll go like, "You were doing poetry, or, or you were doing that." That's not the you I know, and I'm going like I said, but it it it, it all is, and sometimes how yes. one thing can lead can move you to another point, but when you do that, mm-hmm. it touches a thread in a different person, you know. So, that's right. That's right. And, and that's how we Well, I think change. what it shows is that we're, yeah, well, I think what you're, you're demonstrating here is that we are very multifaceted creatures, you know. We have a lot of aspects to our lives and our personalities, and, and they can be expressed in many different ways. And I think you just demonstrated that. Mm-hmm. So well, your book comes out in December. Um, December 31st is the publication date. Okay. And if people are interested in finding out about it so that they can be prepared to order it that first day or second day or even before, how do they go about doing that? How, I mean, how do people stay in touch with you? How do people know about where, you're, where you are with your writing? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, actually, Amazon.com is now taking pre-publication orders for the book. Uh, they just put that up online about a week ago. So you can go online, look up Vanessa Sheridan, and you will have, uh, you know, go to Amazon.com, look up Vanessa Sheridan, and it will take you, you know, to the page where my books are, including the new one that's going to be coming out in December. So you can pre-order it if you like, it's, uh, you know, which is a nice feature to be able to, to share with people. Mm-hmm. And I know they can find you at Center for on Halstead. And, um, right. Okay, and if they wanted to contact you about Sinan Halstead or about having you speak with the organization and that, what's the best way to reach you? Well, there's a couple of ways. You can certainly do it through Center on Halstead, or you can just re- email me at uh, Vanessa at VanessaSheridan.com. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so, okay, so, but... Cinnaron Halstead has just, like, elevated you to that, um, to your new position. Are you as accessible at the center, or, you know, is this changing your whole dynamic on on how you were there? No, I'm still accessible. Uh, People can still, you know, contact me. Um, I try to be as accessible as I can to the community. I think that's important. 
my responsibilities have expanded. Uh, I'm going to be doing additional programming. I'm going to be doing not only trans programming, but uh, some family programming, some women's programming, yeah. creating some new events, that sort of thing. So, uh, again, it all falls under this large umbrella of gender equity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it just expands the scope of, of what I do, and I think that's kind of exciting. Well, I have to. I, I have a confession. As often as I come to Chicago, over the years, I have not been to Center on Halstead. I'm going to come oh, into the. <laughs> Please do. I would love to get to welcome you and give you a tour, show you where I work, and and you know um, let you have an idea of how of, of the incredible scope of of the amazing work that happens at Center on Halstead. We are, you know, the most comprehensive LGBTQ. Uh, community organization in the Midwest and one of the largest in the country and uh, the work that goes on here I have the most amazing talented committed dedicated colleagues I'm in awe of them every day uh, and I'm just fortunate to be one of them I I feel really really lucky to do what I do and I don't take it lightly believe me I'm one of the most fortunate trans people on the planet because I love my work every day I come in and I get to make a difference in people's lives and it's really hard to you know to put a dollar figure on that because making an impact on, on the world is why we're here I believe and so I just feel really lucky to be able to make a living doing what I do and what I love and it's an important time it's an important time you know I know that people are like you know, we can't hide our heads and, you know, crawl under the bed and go like, oh, no. It's an important time to continue to do the work, to do it in a different way than maybe we did it five years ago, but to continue to do the work. And I so appreciate what you're doing. And um, I'm going to add you to my resource list of people and who I will be referring to you and telling you about. But um, I want to thank you, Vanessa, for taking the time to be with me today. Congratulate you again on your esteem award. Um, I, I enjoy the esteem awards. I've been coming to them for many years and um, I appreciate what you do there. Well, you're very kind and I appreciate this opportunity to talk with you today. You're a delightful person and uh, I think we've had a really wonderful conversation and it's, it's an honor to get to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's the first of many. <laughs> it's Works the first for me. Okay. All right, Vanessa, well, you have a great afternoon. I love it. Thank you. Bye-bye. I want to thank today's guest, Vanessa Sheridan, the Director of Gender Equity and Inclusion at Chicago's Center on Halstead. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.